It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 171 for December 6th, 2009, was recorded on December 4th, 2009, but not before a live audience. Computers are supposed to help us become more organized, and it's true, they do. Database applications such as MySQL or Access, flat file programs like Excel, word processor programs such as Word, and email calendar task applications such as Outlook all do their part to help. But there's another tool I've been working with recently, and the more I use it, the more I like it. It's one you may never have heard of. It's a tool that brings new organizational methods to the desktop. A tool that, once you try it, you'll probably want to make it a part of your daily life. I think of Microsoft OneNote as a powerful research tool, a place where I can toss information while I'm preparing a report for TechBiter worldwide. But it's also a place where I can keep lists of complex procedures. If I have a complicated task that I need to perform only occasionally, I keep the notes in OneNote. If I need to collect information throughout the day and then file a report on the results the next day, OneNote holds my observations. And what's nice is once you open a file or create one, you never have to save it. It's all automatic. If you want to be disorganized and use OneNote, you're going to have to try pretty hard because OneNote makes organization amazingly easy. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see some screenshots. One of them has a bulleted list that describes some of OneNote's features. And at the bottom of that screen is some text that I pasted in from the Amazon.com website. It's just one page about OneNote that's part of a tabbed section called Future Programs inside a top-level cabinet that holds information for TechBiter worldwide. I said I use OneNote to keep track of complex processes, so here's a real-life example. It's a proprietary process, so I've obscured the actual text. You'll see most of it covered up when you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website. The process has 26 steps. It involves retrieving data from several sources, writing MySQL queries to organize the information, using the VLOOKUP function in Excel to match data from three sources, sort the resulting data numerically, and then create two reports. It's not a difficult process, but because of the many steps that must be performed in the order shown, I am unlikely to remember it from day to day. Or perhaps more accurately, I am likely to remember it, but not in the right order. So whenever I need to perform this process, OneNote has my checklist ready. There is one challenge, though, that the application poses for me, and that is how to explain all of its benefits in fewer than 100,000 words. But I'll try. First of all, just about anything you can copy using the Windows Cut or Copy function can be pasted into OneNote. Text, pictures, sound, you name it. And OneNote will append information about where the information came from and when you added it. In some cases, there will even be a live link to the application, Word, for example, or Excel, or to the website where the material came from. When you install OneNote, the application installs a printer driver. This means that you can print a document in any application using the OneNote printer, and the output goes directly to OneNote in a nicely formatted form. 
Because OneNote is a Microsoft product, it plays well with Outlook. While working in Outlook's calendar, you can insert a calendar event into OneNote. If you later change the calendar entry, the text in OneNote will be updated. And while working in OneNote, you can insert information in the Outlook calendar or task manager. If you later make changes in OneNote, they will be reflected in Outlook. It's easy to copy contact information from OneNote to Outlook's Contacts tool. Changes, though, in either side are not updated on the other. And if you create a task in OneNote and port it to Outlook, changes will not be reflected. But if you create that task in Outlook and port it to OneNote, changes on either side will be reflected on the other. So, in other words, the connections aren't exactly perfect, but wow, they're impressive. OneNote is designed to work with tablet computers, so that means the ink functions have been developed quite well. Even if you don't have a tablet notebook, you can use the functions if you have a digitizing device, or you can even do it with a mouse. My handwriting isn't exactly the best. You'll see a sample of my handwriting on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I wrote, this is a test, and it's reasonably readable. So, that's an example of the drawing tools that are available. And I could have just left the written text as it was, but I selected the handwriting and asked OneNote to convert it to text. And yes, this really does work. The neater you write, the more accurate the conversion is. But, as you'll see, I am not a particularly neat writer. And the results were surprisingly good. There's even a built-in research function. Some of the research facilities are installed on your computer, but others need an Internet connection. You can check spelling, look up a definition, or even ask OneNote to translate from your language to one of several dozen other languages. And if an automated translation isn't good enough for you, you can use OneNote to hire a translation service. I tried a quick test of the automatic translation function. I wrote in English, translate this message to Russian. And one note responded, Pervedite eta sovoschenia kerskomo. All right, my Russian's a little rusty, but that is essentially translate this message to Russian. When you create a new notebook, and OneNote can have any number of notebooks, OneNote allows you to set up a sharing system so that you can use the notebook on multiple computers or so that multiple people can share a notebook. Although this is a powerful feature, you need to create the share on a network drive that's accessible to everyone who needs it or on a SharePoint server. SharePoint servers are expensive. Shared network drives at the office may not be available when you're at home. Ideally, OneNote would be able to share via an FTP server, but this seems not to be the case. And although Microsoft warns against using other sharing techniques, I've been able to share notebooks successfully from office to home using AlwaysSync and an FTP site. The key to this kind of sharing is to set up the synchronization schedule in such a way that it's virtually impossible to have more than one instance of the files changed between synchronizations. And there's something even better, but I won't really be telling you much about this until 2010. Microsoft has another application that fits perfectly right here. It's called Microsoft Groove, and it allows you to share files among various computers. It plays beautifully with OneNote. If you need to email a single OneNote page to someone, OneNote will open Outlook. This doesn't work with other email programs, even if they're the default application for email. The email message will contain a OneNote file that will be opened by OneNote if it's present, 
But if the recipient doesn't have OneNote, the entire contents of the page will be displayed in the email message as an HTML document. And, well, those are the basics. It's not all, but it's all I have time for. The bottom line is that OneNote gets you organized and keeps you organized. There are a few shortcomings in its relationship with Outlook and in its inability to use any email program other than Outlook, but OneNote is one powerful application that keeps track of a lot of information. It's a Microsoft Office component, but it is included in only one version of Office. It's an application that Microsoft doesn't talk about very much, but should. And although it's listed at $100 if you buy it separately... You can find it for less than $70 at Amazon.com and a bunch of other sites. There's a link to the Amazon.com site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you'd like more information on Microsoft OneNote, you'll find a link to that site on the Microsoft website from TechBiter Worldwide, www.techbiter.com. From the Microsoft site, you can download a two-month free trial. And if after using OneNote for two months, you're willing to stop using it, I'll be surprised. My preferred web browser continues to be Firefox, in part because of the thousands of add-ons available. These add-ons extend the browser. Some of those add-ons have been designed for programmers and developers, but they can also be useful for the rest of us. So today I thought I'd tell you about some of them. One, and probably the least useful for non-developers, is installed by default. It's called the DOM Inspector. DOM is an acronym for Document Object Model. The document object model defines every component of a web page based on its location in the hierarchy. And having said that it's installed by default for reasons not known to me, the DOM inspector was not installed when I went to look for it. So I have now reinstalled it. I do find it useful. You'll find the DOM inspector under the tools menu, but unless you're a programmer or a web designer, there won't be very much there for you. So that's the end of the line for the DOM inspector in this article. One you can download is called Firebug. It's another favorite among programmers and designers because it allows users to inspect the HTML code, the CSS code, and JavaScript in addition to the document object model. All right, so maybe this one doesn't offer a lot for non-programmers either. How about the Web Developer plugin? Given the name, you might think this would be the worst of the bunch when it comes to non-developers, but not so. Although most of the application's functions have been included specifically for developers, you'll find a few features that can be helpful for anybody. So I thought I'd take a look at what you can find inside the Web Developer plugin. <laughs> well, you're going to find a lot of menus. So let's start at the left and go across and see what's there. The Disable menu. As you would expect, the Disable menu allows you to disable certain website functions. You can suppress Java applets or JavaScript. Those are the two that most non-developers would use. But if colors on the page disagree with you, you can also disable the website's colors. There's an entire Disable Cookies menu. Again, primarily for developers, but if you're having a problem with a website and you suspect that cached cookies are the cause... You could use this menu to disable the cookies temporarily and then delete the site's cookies only if they really are the cause of the problem. And you don't have to delete all the cookies. Quick glance at the Cascading Style Sheets menu. Key feature for developers who want to be certain their pages operate properly, even on browsers without good CSS support. But for the rest of us, there's not much here. How about the Forms menu? 
This one consists mainly of heavy-duty tools for developers, but the show password function can help you if you need to know a password but don't know how to retrieve a saved password from the browser. If the browser has the saved password, just go to the login page and allow the browser to populate the password field. Then use show password and voila, text. Is this a security problem? Well, yes and no. Firefox already stores the passwords, and they're available in plain text. You just need to know where to look. The Images menu. This is one that a lot of people will find useful. It allows you to do just about anything with the images that are on the page. You can see where they're located, turn them off, reveal their sizes, and if you're trying to read a page that has an annoying background image, just turn it off to make the text more readable. The longest menu in the program is the Information menu. It doesn't offer very much unless you're a designer or a developer. How about the miscellaneous menu? This is where you can go to clear the browser cache, history, and private data. You can magnify the page and even linearize it. Linearize? That means that the text and images will be in the order that they exist in the HTML, not in the order that they've been placed by CSS and JavaScript. And no, I'm not quite sure why any average person would want to do that. The Outline menu contains functions that draw outlines around specific page components. In other words, this is another menu that contains nothing of interest unless you are a designer. It sounds like most of the tools in here are for designers or developers, doesn't it? And that's true. That's not a surprise. But there are some features in here, as you've heard, that work for the rest of us. There's the Resize menu. Zoom in and out using this menu's function. But you can already do that in Firefox without this menu. Control plus enlarges, control minus reduces, control zero sets the page back to its default size. I'm not quite sure why that's even on the menu. Tools menu, if you're a developer, you'll spend a lot of time there. If not, you won't. There is the view source menu. If you're a developer, this will be very appealing to you. If not, probably not. But if you have any curiosity about what makes a web page tick, You might want to use this feature. You might be surprised what all's back there. I have to warn you about the options menu. There is an option in the options menu called persist features. If you turn a lot of features on or off and then select this function, those features are going to be present or absent when you reload the browser. In most cases, you probably don't want to do that. This is also where you can set dozens of other preferences for the plugin. No cat rating for the web developer plugin. After all, it would vary depending on whether you're a developer or just a regular user. If you're a developer, and I were awarding cats, I'd probably have to give this one four. If you're not a developer, you know, probably one and a half. It's got some interesting stuff in there. But you're not going to use it a lot. When I mentioned last week the ability to change the icon that a Windows application displays, I heard from the self-proclaimed or perhaps self-admitted, icon junkie who mentioned a compulsion to collect icons. Not so much to use them, but just to collect them. Some people collect coins or stamps. Others may collect salt shakers or matchbooks. And apparently a few collect icons. So if you wake up some morning with an overwhelming compulsion to collect icons, I have a tool to recommend. Icon Extract by Near Sofer. This application extracts icons from any file and allows you to save them to the directory of your choice. I pointed the program at the entire C drive. 
68,774 icons later, I decided I didn't like the result. Too many useless icons had been duplicated, so I tried again. This time I looked only at the Windows directory and its subdirectories. Still too much for my taste. But when I limited the search to just the Windows System32 directory, the result was around 6,000 icons. I removed the ones that were blank or otherwise stood out as ones I would never use, and although it might have been useful to have all of the icons in a single file, I wasn't able to find a free application that worked well to do that. So now I have a directory with about 4,200 icons, and when I want to modify a program's icon, I just navigate there. This isn't a hobby for everybody, but it's easy to do, and it's inexpensive, which is not something you can say about hobbies such as photography or skydiving. In short circuits, I have been looking at a vast antivirus for several weeks as a possible replacement for AVG antivirus. I'll tell you more about it in January when I've decided whether Avast makes the cut or not. For some people, this week was enough to make them reconsider Avast as a viable alternative. Wednesday evening, the software publisher distributed an update that mistakenly identified hundreds of files as being infected with a Trojan horse. Because of the timing, I wasn't affected. Avast says that shortly after midnight GMT, or 8.15 in the U.S. Eastern Time Zone, they released an update that started flagging hundreds of innocent files as a Win32 Delph MZG Trojan, or in less common cases, a Win32 Zbot MKK Trojan. They said a number of high-profile programs were affected, but within six hours Avast had realized what had happened and put out a replacement update. By then, in some cases, the damage had already been done. Some people quarantined files that they mistakenly thought contained Trojans. Others deleted the files outright. If the quarantined files weren't essential to booting Windows, the recovery was fairly easy. But if the files were critical system files, or if essential program files had been deleted, recovery, in some cases, involved reinstalling the operating system and the applications. Sometimes in an emergency, quick action is essential. Other times, it's better to sit back and wait just a bit. Instead of telling the system to delete files outright, it probably would have been better to quarantine them. After the first few false positives, most people would have realized that a mistake had obviously been made, and had the files simply been quarantined, they could have easily been restored. Now, why didn't it affect me? Well, I'd like to tell you that I'm absolutely brilliant and saw through the problem immediately. I'd like to tell you that, but I had turned off the computer early on Wednesday, and I was reading at 8 p.m., so my computer never received the bad update. It did receive the corrected update the following morning. So, in this case, early to bed and early to rise was, if not a lifesaver, at least a computer saver. And I suspect, because of the timing, more West Coast users were affected because the bad update went out right at the end of their workday. Who makes the most reliable notebook computers? Let's see, you're probably thinking Apple, right? If so, you're wrong. According to research by Square Trade, that's the third-party warranty provider that works with a lot of retailers, Apple notebook computers are about mid-range when it comes to reliability. If you buy a notebook computer this year, you have about a 31% chance that it's going to fail within the next three years. 
Your odds are better with some brands, worse with others. HP, for example. HP sells the most computers, but it has the highest failure rate, nearly 26%. At the other end of the spectrum, you'll find Asus, not very well known, and Toshiba. They are both right around 15.5% failure rates. Sony, Apple, and Dell check in with 16 to 18% failure rates, but then there's a big gap. Lenovo and Acer are 22 and 23% respectively, and at the bottom of the heap, or the top of the failure heap, Gateway and HP, 25% and 26%. Who would have thought 10 years ago that HP hardware would be on a par with Gateway? Now, at the top, I said there was about a 31% chance that you'd have a problem in the next three years, but I've been quoting 15 to 26% failure rates. So where's that other 10% come from? Accidents. The notebook falls out of your backpack while you're riding a bike. Those account for about a third of the breakdowns. Hardware malfunctions account for the other two-thirds. Square Trade randomly selected more than 30,000 laptop and netbook computers for their analysis. Only items that were purchased brand new, in other words, not refurbished or used, were used in their research. To read the full story, you can download it from the Square Trade website, and you'll find a link to the Square Trade website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, which is, of course, www.techbiter.com. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.